Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for October 4th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellams, and this is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Ahead, the legacy of lynching. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Prolick talked with Arkansas-based writer Guy Lancaster about his new book, American Atrocity. That begins in about four minutes. The combined reporting for Saturday and Sunday from the Arkansas Department of Health shows almost 1,200 new cases of COVID-19 and 22 additional weekend reported deaths. Governor Asa Hutchinson tweeted yesterday, new cases from the surge because of the Delta variant are on the downslope, but he cautions it's unknown if a new surge could develop this winter, and he again urged Arkansans to become vaccinated against the virus. The balance of legislative power in Arkansas could shift away from the governor and into the legislature during the general election next year. One of three ballot initiatives would give the state legislators the ability to call themselves into special session. This week on Talk Business and Politics, political analysts from both parties responded to a poll showing potential voters are split on the idea. Republican lobbyist Robert Kuhn with the Impact Management Group says it's unlikely voters understand the significance of the proposal probably not a whole lot of institutional knowledge there of how the current process even works to get into a special session. I just don't think that's that's certainly not kitchen table conversation. I don't think people really, uh, unless they've been spending time reading the Constitution uh, in their lunch break, are really very informed on how that process works. Democrat Jay Barth, professor of politics at Hendricks College, says no significant political groups for any party have invested in informing voters about the measure yet. There are uh, institutionalists, those who kind of care about uh, maintaining the balance of power, uh, who are concerned about this kind of continual uh, drift of empowerment by the legislature, really leaving an already pretty powerless governor, even less powerful, uh, in that they could, the legislature could really uh, call themselves into session at any point and start making laws. Arkansas is one of 14 states in which only the governor can call a special session. Governor Asa Hutchinson has said he opposes this proposal. The talk business and politics Hendricks College poll indicates a majority of Arkansas voters support eliminating personal income taxes in Arkansas. The poll finds of more than 900 Arkansas voters asked last month, 54 percent generally support the elimination of the tax that represents nearly half of the state's income. Another 20 percent said they were unsure where they were on the issue. The poll further asked those who generally support the move or didn't have a firm opinion if they would still support the elimination if the state would have to take other measures, such as raising other taxes or cutting services. 49% of those supporting say they would still approve of the elimination of personal income tax. Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge, who is seeking the Republican Party nomination for governor, has advocated placing the elimination of the state's personal income tax by 2030 on a future ballot for voters. Arkansas's Secretary of Health, Dr. Jose Romero, is being given a high honor from the Mexican government for his commitment to making sure there is free and equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. Dr. Romero was honored with the Oatley Award given by the Mexican government to people residing outside of Mexico, and it is the highest award given by the Mexican Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Dr. Romero is also a professor of pediatrics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Services. And Governor Asa Hutchinson is declaring October Arkansas Farm to School Month as a way to place more attention on efforts for schools and farms to connect to bring healthier food to children.
This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas historian Guy Lancaster has written a new book, newly published by the University of Arkansas Press, Redefining Racial Lynching. The book's called American Atrocity. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich caught up with him and brings us this report. Guy Lancaster investigates and documents lynching in Arkansas, long perceived as isolated incidents of vigilante white mob justice. He's also authored several books on lynching and racial cleansing. But his new book, American Atrocity, aims to tear down the scaffolding framing lynching in America, erecting a new definition for our time. I think the awareness of historical racial violence parallels our awareness of current racial violence. Uh, as, as we see with the ubiquity of cell phone videos uh, in which we can see attacks against African-Americans, har- harassment of African-Americans and others, that's driving an, an awareness of our present, which helps build the question of how we got here. Lancaster says the structural roots of racial violence has long been grist for academic research and writing, but is now spilling out into popular culture, in part triggered by Black Lives Matter, as well as a wealth of open access, digitized historical records and archives. He understands this more than most as longstanding editor of the Encyclopedia of Arkansas History and Culture. At the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, we have more than 200 lynching-related entries, and we still have more than 100 or more to be written. Lancaster's doctoral dissertation on racial cleansing in Arkansas, the violent expulsion of African Americans from certain communities, set him on his current path. He says delving into the state's newspaper morgue, tracing back to the 1800s forward, reveals an alarming frequency of reported African-American lynching on front pages above the fold. I mean, lynching is often called rough justice. That that was a term, a historical term uh, that applied to it. But this, this term really deflects attention away from the fact that what occurred was not justice as we understand it. It, it was never truly a response to a criminal action. Uh, in one of my chapters, I delve into the phenomenon of Black men being lynched simply for having consensual relationships with white women. Uh, And in these cases, the newspapers didn't even bother to allege any sort of uh, attack or rape had occurred. They openly acknowledged that this lynching occurred uh, because of these consensual relationships. And so there's no real point in calling lynchings like this rough justice. And we need to move away from the perspective that considers lynching as sort of an exaggerated response to a crime. Uh, For there are many cases where we have no evidence of any crime ever having occurred. He reads an excerpt from American Atrocity about a horrific lynching of a woman. On March 11, 1894, a group of African-Americans were traveling from the community of Marche back to their homes in nearby Little Rock when, quote, they found the decayed body of a mulatto woman, probably about 30 years of age, suspended from the limb of a tree. Upon closer inspection, the woman seemed to have been dead for several days, and on her chest was a placard bearing the words, if anybody cuts this body down, they will share the same fate. As the Arkansas Gazette reported, the woman is supposed to have been lynched, but when, by whom, and for what reason, no one is able to state. That fact can make this particular murder perhaps a greater source of terror than a more public lynching. 
After all, lynchings are publicly justified as a response to particular misdeeds, murder, rape, theft, and so forth. And although the reality was that lynch mobs could attack individuals not associated with the crime at all, or that sometimes people were lynched to eliminate competition rather than serve the cause of justice, at least the reference to criminality gave those in targeted communities a baseline of expected behavior. But what lesson can this 1894 lynching provide? In his book, Lancaster argues for a new definition of lynching. A lynching is a scapegoating form of violence. That is, it, its purpose is to unify one group at the expense of a victim from another group. Um, white population wasn't just based upon race. White popu- populations were div- divided by class, divided by ethnic origin, religion, and more. And so lynching was a way of bringing all of these together under the banner of white supremacy. Um, and lynching was not just violence perpetrated by a group, but also violence perpetrated against a group. Most often targeting African-Americans to whom white supremacists assigned low moral status. Lancaster writes that lynching is an execution of another person by a self-constituted group engaging in a tacitly permitted public ritual. Even if a mob just killed one person, they intended that murder to be a message Uh, to all other people from that group. Lynching was regularly imagined as a virtuous cleansing act. If you look at the uh, descriptions of lynching victims, you often find them uh, described as bestial or demonic. And so uh, the lynch mob in this case um, takes on the the identity of like avenging angels almost. Uh, They are depicted as being righteous. And also, you can't separate lynching from other aspects of white supremacy, including economic subjugation or political disfranchisement. Uh, Lynching worked with those as a means of maintaining those structures of domination. Lynching, he says, was seen as a virtuous form of lethal violence used to punish and regulate to maintain structural racial inequality. And in the end, Lancaster writes, perpetrators felt morally and spiritually justified in committing lynchings. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Guy Lancaster is also editor of Bullets and Fire, Lynching and Authority in Arkansas, 1840 to 1950. American Atrocity is available for purchase from the University of Arkansas Press. He'll present American Atrocity at Six Bridges Book Festival, October 24th. Registration for the free digital event is required. You can find a link to registration at ozarksatlarge.com. And in about four minutes on our show, a conversation with Zachary Crow, the executive director of Decarcerate Arkansas. He'll deliver the next talks in the Tippy McMichael Lecture Series at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Our conversation about incarceration in Arkansas just ahead. KUAF is supported by Packrat Outdoor Center, hosting Pint Night Wednesday, October 6th, 5.30 to 8 p.m. This Pint Night will benefit Arkansas backcountry, hunters, and anglers. Local beverages and appetizers, live music, and giveaways from Mystery Ranch will be available. Tickets are available online at packratoc.com under the Clinics and Events tab. 
Last week, the Cherokee Nation reached a $75 million settlement with three of the country's biggest opioid distributors. It's the largest deal of any kind for any tribal government in the United States. Principal Chief for the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr., says the opioid epidemic has been particularly devastating for people in his community. The impact has been severe. I mean, the number of pills uh, that have been flooded into this region uh, outnumber every man, woman, and child by, you know, several times over. So we know we had a deluge of uh, pain meds, opioids into the reservation. Cherokee Nation filed the lawsuit against Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson in 2017. Chief Hoskins says the payout for the settlement will be spread out over the next six years to fund community health programs. We're going to shift from a model where we contract out a great deal of behavioral health and addiction programs to a model where we do more in-house and we have more quality control and we can develop programs that are really fine-tuned for uh, Cherokee people dealing with addiction and and related mental and physical uh, ailments related to uh, addiction from opioids and other substances and mental challenges. So for us, it's an opportunity, though, now to uh, make our people as whole as we can. He says the tribe is still pursuing a lawsuit against pharmacy chains that sold opioid medication, including CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. I feel confident that we're building the same case uh, against these uh, uh, big pharmacies, and I certainly hope we achieve a settlement because, again, there's more justice to be served uh, in the Cherokee Nation uh, for the injury done by the opioid industry. The tribe reached another milestone last week, enrolling its 400,000th member. Chief Hoskins says the growth is in part due to $2,000 COVID-19 relief payments for citizens enrolled by June of 2022. The growth, I think, is in part because more people, I think, are curious about their ancestry. They're researching it. They're determining that they're eligible for citizenship. But frankly, the other reason is that we have committed more resources to help our people and build up our communities, provide health care and educational opportunities than any time in history during the last couple of years. Chief Hoskins says the tribe has a rigorous registration procedure and is working through a backlog of thousands of applications from across the United States. Most of our population lives outside of the reservation in northeast Oklahoma. So you have about 140, 150,000 people living inside the 14 counties in northeast Oklahoma over which our reservation covers. But there are Cherokees all over the country. I mean, in the state of Arkansas alone, I think there's probably somewhere around 10,000 Cherokees, something like that. Uh, but you can go to any state in this country and find Cherokees. That's a sign of strength. It's also a sign of political strength because I think Cherokee people uh, need to speak up. They need to vote uh, and they need to make sure that uh, elected leaders Leaders at the local level, state level, and the federal level know that they are Cherokee people and we are still here and we're here in record numbers. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Scott Tong. The internet is one global thing, right? Actually, a new book argues there are four competing flavors of it around the world, and that may just be how things are. What we've got to do, ideally, is keep the internet going while still leaving everybody space to do their own thing online, even if we don't like it. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now begins at 1, right after we're done, on KUAF and streaming on the KUAF app. The Carcerate is a nonprofit group working to end mass incarceration in Arkansas. Zachary Crow, the organization's executive director, will speak this upcoming weekend in Fayetteville as part of the McMichael Lecture Series at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Saturday night, he'll deliver the address, Burn It Down, the Past, Present, and Future of the Criminal Injustice System in Arkansas. Sunday morning, his talk is titled, Imagining a Future, 
a conversation on transformative justice. Last week, we reached him by phone, and he told us that to understand the present and possible future of incarceration in Arkansas, he thinks it's necessary to understand the past. You know, I'm working right now on authoring a book about the history of prisons in Arkansas. Um, And, you know, part of what I've come to know is that folks generally, thanks thanks to... um, you know, prominent voices like Michelle Alexander and Brian Stevenson and ha- have a general sense of of how we got here. Um, things like the war on drugs and these sort of big uh, ways that the prison population has exploded uh, since the 60s. Um, but we don't have a very strong understanding of, of a localized history, like, like what, what Arkansas looked like in these moments. Uh, and I think that's really important if we're if we're going to do the work in a particular place, we have to understand the history of that place. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna really, you know, start by talking about um, the present, um, talk about the the problems, uh, the the current realities that we're facing. We're gonna dive back into. Uh, some of the history of uh, prisons in Arkansas and how we got here. And then we're going to turn to the future, which which is really rooted in Dr. King's question, where do we go from here? What what are some of the biggest challenges that face a future or obtaining a future without mass incarceration? You know, it, 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 it requires collective imagination, right? Um, and that's difficult for us sometimes. Um, I think what uh, I think our society has turned to prison as a single answer to lots and lots of different kinds of harm. Um, and I don't think one one institution can solve all of those problems. Uh, and so I think the way the only way out of this mess. Uh, is by looking at lots and lots of solutions that address uh, lots of different kinds of harm. So uh, a world without mass incarceration looks like a world that takes seriously uh, free and affordable housing. It's a world that takes seriously um, things like uh, mental health care, um, takes seriously um, uh, creating... Uh, systems and institutions that um, take care of folks. So, um, you know, during the talk, we're going to, we're going to look at what it means to dismantle the system, but then what do we have to build uh, in place of the current system? Uh, How do we address uh, the harm uh, that's caused by, by violence um, uh, in a way that doesn't perpetuate more harm? Uh, and, and that's what really what we're we're looking to do. You mentioned that we as a as a population can sometimes have challenges with collective imagination, and 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 when you're talking about housing and mental health and justice, these are big, complicated issues. Is there a key to not becoming overwhelmed? And when you talk to people that you're trying to discuss a future without mass incarceration? Is there a key to, to make it um, uh, realistic in their minds, if you know what I mean? 
Yeah, um, I don't know that there's a specific roadmap. Um, there's not sort of uh, a silver uh, bullet, or at least not one that I have. There are some tent poles that I think help help get us there and move us in the right direction. Uh, and so we'll talk about some of those, um, you know, during the time that uh, I'm in Fayetteville. Um, you know, I, I think there are some principles that help us to start imagining um, how we get there. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, I find hope uh, in the fact that people are already doing this work um, in small ways. Um, folks are already figuring out how uh, how to keep one another safe, uh, how to keep um, protecting one another um, and building, uh, you know, systems within uh, their own community that, that keep one another safe and uh, limit the harm that's done uh, in these places. And so, you know, for me, uh, you know, hope is hard, but I have it. And I have it because um, I see folks doing the work. Um, yeah. There are populations, I think we all know, but there are populations that are um, disproportionately uh, affected by mass incarceration, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and so certainly, you know, people of color, uh, as well as poor folks, um, yeah, would be the largest, uh, you know, two that come to mind. But, um, you know, this is, um, yeah, I mean, we... Uh, um, I, I think when we talk about um, these systems, we have to talk about um, we have to talk about the roots, and we have to talk about um, sort of where all of this emerges from. Uh, and what we know is that prison operates by and large as an extension uh, of slavery. Uh, that prison. Uh, from its very beginning uh, across the country and here in Arkansas um, was tied to profiting from the labor of uh, people of color and poor folks. Um, and so, you know, today um, we see uh, people of color and, and poor folks uh, disproportionately uh, harmed by incarceration. And we know that goes back to the very beginning. You're up to, to, to end mass incarceration, you're up against some institutions. I mean, prisons themselves are institutions, but just sort of institutional thinking. This won't happen overnight, but are you optimistic? You mentioned there were people doing work now. Are you optimistic things are maybe slightly even changing now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think um, I think. We are um, seeing a shift, you know, even in the last decade uh, around uh, a deeper understanding of, of our present state and a, a deeper understanding that something has to change, um, you know, and, and I've been comforted to, to see um, that there are folks on both sides of the aisle beginning to have these conversations uh, now, you know, I think as far as the tactics of how we, how we, you know, solve this problem or how we work to a, a new reality, you know, those can be 
debated and should be debated. Um, you know, we may have different opinions about that, but at the very least, um, there are folks, I think, whose eyes are opened in a way that they weren't uh, 10 years ago. Um, and, and I think that's a really good sign. How important are elements like rethinking the bail system or the decriminalization of marijuana? Do they do they lead into this conversation as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so I would say we'll talk about this a little bit in the talk, but, you know, I would say there's sort of three, um, if not steps, pillars to this conversation, um, which would be moratorium. Uh, right, no new jails, no new prisons, um, halting the expansion of this uh, of the carceral state, and folks, uh, folks there in Washington County have an opportunity to join in this work as folks on the ground are attempting to uh, once again attempting to halt uh, the expansion of the Washington County Jail. Right, and so the first pillar I would point to is is moratorium. Let's not make this thing any bigger. Uh, the second is decarceration, right? Like, let's get more people out of prison. Uh, and that certainly includes things like um, bail reform, sentencing reform, uh, decriminalizing um, drug uh, offenses or decriminalizing um, drugs. Um, and then the third pillar I would point to um, is around... Um, diversion or what folks might call excarceration, creating systems um, systems uh, that function outside of, uh, of, of, the, of the institution of prison. So what are ways that we can fund housing and think about the funding of housing as an alternative to prison? Uh, and so, um, you know, for me, I, I think this is... Uh, we, we didn't get here uh, overnight, and it's going to take a lot of uh, work and a lot of uh, different kinds of tactics to get us out of it. So uh, I would certainly support the things you referenced in your question, but, um, you know, there there's lots of, of work to do, and, and I think that requires lots of different strategies and lots of different work from lots of different people. If we set aside for just a moment the human question, the humanity in all of this, and just talk financial, does it make financial sense to end mass incarceration? Yeah, I mean, I I don't have the most current um, figure in front of me, but um, we, I think, spend... Oh gosh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give a number. Uh, I would mess it up, but an exorbitant amount of money, billions and billions of dollars um, across the the nation in uh, uh, locking people up, uh, the infrastructure that keeps people in cages, um, and so you know, in a state, particularly in the South, um, you know, when we look at Arkansas's budget in particular. Um, a, a huge portion of our state budget goes towards uh, keeping people locked up. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, I, I know some folks who, um, you know, talk a lot about cutting taxes. And I, uh, uh, you know, they don't get where they want to go without uh, addressing the state budget. 
and folks who want to see funding for things like public education and all these other uh, social goods, we don't get there unless we address the state budget either. And so, I um, I, I think I think we have to look um, at um, how we're spending money uh, and how much money we're spending on these institutions. Uh, I would say budgets are moral documents, and uh, we have to start there. Finally, is there is there a place either domestically or internationally we can look for an example of of what uh, we might want to strive for post mass incarceration? You know, I, I don't know of a society that has uh, has gotten rid of prisons. Um, I, I think that's um, you know, so I don't know that I have a specific um, uh, you know sort of. Uh, prime example of where uh, we hope to be heading. But there are, there are lots of places. Um, I mean, most places other than the U.S. are doing a significantly better job of addressing things like gun violence, addressing um, the, uh, you know, dependence on drugs, um, addressing um, uh, health care and housing, all these things that uh, become criminalized and uh, lead to an increase in the number of people in prison. Um, you know, there are um, places who, um, you know, do most of these things better than we do here um, and have found ways of addressing societal harm that, um, you know, doesn't require locking people up. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's the great, myth that we've been socialized to believe that prisons somehow deter crime and somehow keep us safe. And it's just not true. Zachary Crow is the executive director of Decarcerate and will offer two talks at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville this upcoming weekend. Saturday night's lecture, Burn It Down, the Past, Present and Future of the Criminal Injustice System in Arkansas, will be at the church on East Avenue beginning at 7. There is a reception that evening at 6. Sunday morning's talk, Imagining a Future, a conversation on transformative justice begins at the church at 10 a.m. He spoke with us last week. Hi, I'm Sylvia Poggioli from NPR. I want to thank all our generous listeners. Without your help, I would not have had a flak jacket while covering the wars in the Balkans, and I wouldn't be able to board Shepherd One to cover Pope Francis's travels across the world. Grazie for making our work possible. Yes, thank you. Grazie for contributing to KUAF throughout September and, of course, last week during our annual fall on-air fundraiser. Our goal for the entire fundraising month of September was $150,000, and we reached just over $153,000. Thank you. That's financial support that keeps this show on the air, and it keeps all of your favorite programs on KUAF, all things considered, morning edition, fresh air, you name it. It also allows us to continue to bring you for free services like the KUAF app, that lets you connect with us, stream our stations anywhere, and gives you access to past editions of Ozarks at Large, all in your hand. Your support, and three-fourths, actually even more, of our budget comes from you. Your support also means we can continue to bring you around-the-clock classical music on KUAF2 on your HD radio at KUAF.com and through our KUAF app. And speaking of classical music, we will start nine consecutive hours of great classical music with Peter Vandegraaff tonight at 8 on KUAF 91.3. Tonight's first hour will include four 
Solo Concertos by Antonio Vivaldi. Classical music with Peter Vandergraaff begins at 8 tonight on KUAF, and you can stream it on the app and at KUAF.com. If your heart is set on a specific book, game, or puzzle this holiday season, you might be out of luck. The paper, the printing, the shipping, the warehouses, just like every single step of the process has been affected. I'm Ari Shapiro. How the pandemic has tangled up publishing supply chains this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF and at KUAF.com. The Oklahoma State Department of Health is counting nearly 3,800 new cases of COVID-19 diagnosed in the past three days. That report covers today's numbers as well as the cases diagnosed in Saturday and Sunday counting in Oklahoma. The number of fatal cases of COVID-19 in Oklahoma now near 10,500. The combined reporting for the past three days includes 140 deaths that have been confirmed, though not necessarily occurred in the past 72 hours. A north-central Arkansas Ozarks boat manufacturer is expanding. Vexus Boats in Flippin in Marion County, about 30 minutes east of Harrison, announced this morning it will add 30% more square footage to its manufacturing operation. The company says the expansion represents a more than $4 million investment and will mean 50 new full-time jobs. The University of Arkansas soccer team, ranked eighth in the nation, is now 4-0 in the SEC after defeating Georgia 4-0 yesterday in Athens. The win was the ninth straight overall for the Razorbacks. That's the longest winning streak in program history. Arkansas will host Alabama Thursday night at 7 in Fayetteville. The John Brown University soccer teams are home Thursday as well. The women, ranked ninth in the country in NAIA competition, will host Southwestern AG at Lions Field in Siloam Springs Thursday afternoon at 1. The JBU men will play Southwestern at 3 Thursday afternoon. JBU women, by the way, 7-1 and one so far. The men are 3-6. and six. And the Arkansas Razorback football team is lower in this week's Associated Press poll after being shut out at number 2 Georgia Saturday afternoon. Arkansas now number 13 in the country. And the Razorbacks will be in Oxford, Mississippi this Saturday to face number 17 Mississippi. Some of the top collegiate golf teams in the country are in northwest Arkansas today for the Blessings College Invitational at Blessings Golf Course. The Golf Channel is providing national coverage from Fayetteville today, tomorrow, and Wednesday from 3 to 6 each afternoon. The field includes the North Carolina men's team, currently ranked number one in the country. Brooke Matthews, an Arkansas Razorback, is currently rated the top woman collegiate player in the country and the 20th ranked amateur in the world. And tomorrow on Ozarks, researchers at Arkansas Center for Health Improvement and UAMS are collaborating on a study about Arkansas's medical marijuana users. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich will have that story tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF. And it's available on your schedule as well when you subscribe to the free KUAF podcast. It's available through any major podcast distributor. I remember you at fullback and guard. Where else? I played uh, end and I played linebacker and tackle and played all of practically all the offensive line positions and everything but uh, quarterback just about in the backfield. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm with Randy Dixon in his office at the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, what started us off this week? That would be Jerry Jones, who was on the uh, championship team for the Razorbacks in 64, and of course now the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. And he is the subject of this week's Pryor Center Profile. Each Monday, Randy and I get together and share some archive, digitized archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Jerry Jones, yes. Now, what we just heard there was long before he was an owner of an NFL franchise. Yes, it was shortly after he had graduated from the U of A. He was talking to uh, 
KATV's Bud Campbell and was recalling, uh, or actually, I, I guess, naming all of the uh, positions he, he had played, and he was quite the versatile player. All right, and he was on that legendary mid-60s national championship team that would spawn a lot of people who would go on to kind of shape Arkansas in the South. That's true. Um, and in this next interview, he talks about the not the 64 season, but the 63 season when they thought they were going to do quite well and didn't, but it certainly prepared them for the following big, big season. 1963 was the year that the Razorbacks were favored to win the Southwest Conference title. They finished with a 5-5 record, and one of the gentlemen who was on that team is with us today, Jerry Jones. Jerry, uh, people look back on that 63 season, 5-5, five and five, and they say, well, it was a bad year, but in some ways it was a good year. In what ways was it good? Well, Bud, we called it our, our baptizing, our christening that year because... Uh, I think a, a lot of us, we were expected to win the title. Uh, we'd gotten a lot of build-ups, and uh, I think it uh, showed a lot of us that just because we had the Razorback uniform on didn't mean that the points were going to go in our favor. And uh, I think it's as, it was as important a year as the two-a-day football practice or the spring football practice before the year we went 11-0. I sure did. In other words, what happened in 63 gave the coaches a lot of ammunition to use in 64. It sure did, and it gave the seniors in 1964 a lot of ammunition in their own minds and hearts to use because we sure didn't want a reoccurrence of that. Now, that's Jerry Jones in the mid to late 60s talking about when he played on the 1963 team. Then the next year, of course, is the national championship. Yes, and Jerry Jones was the co-captain of that team. Um, you know, from time to time, we'll come on here with the old time sports reels with current tips and uh, announcers like that. Well, Here's one that we found uh, that's a sports reel recap of the beginning of that season. The University of Arkansas presents its football highlights of 1964. The exciting action of every Southwest Conference game, plus the climactic Cotton Bowl contest in Dallas. It was a year of greatness for the Razorbacks, from a cautious start against two non-conference opponents, to the steady improvement of November with five consecutive shutouts. For the first time in the university's history... And so that's the beginning of the 64 season. Uh, Arkansas Razorback football fans know that by the end of the 64 season, the team is crowned, at least by a couple of the... Back then there were like five or six polls, but the ones that counted post-bowl uh, games said Arkansas national champions. That's right. And uh, Paul Eels, uh, former voice of the Razorbacks, uh, has a recap here of the entire 64 season. University of Arkansas football was 70 years old in 1964, and what a year it turned out to be. After winning only five games the season before, the Hogs won them all in 64, turning the corner in a one-point win against Texas at Austin on a back-breaking punt return for a touchdown by deep safety Kenny Hatfield. 
Uh, we just happened to be there when everything was right. We had a great team my sophomore year. We had probably one of the low moments in Arkansas football my junior year where we were 5-5. Five and five. And then come back to be 11-0 national champion my senior year, the only one that they've had back there in about 75 years. So I had uh, the whole gamut of emotions, and it was a great program. And ever since, everywhere I've been since then, Florida, Tennessee, anywhere, I've tried to find a place that he, uh, could even equal Arkansas in, in that particular time frame, and I just hadn't found any. The 64 Hogs went 11-0, shutting out their last five opponents. The season was capped by a 10-7 win over Nebraska in the Cotton Bowl, earning the school its only national championship. If the 1964 Razorbacks could play like Arkansas did against Texas or like Arkansas did against in the Orange Bowl, uh, then whoever you play, you can span any era. And uh, I kind of think we'd have probably played like that. I mentioned earlier that this... These Razorback teams in the mid-60s, the people who were on them, many of them would sort of form or help shape Arkansas and parts of the South for the next couple of decades to come. That's true. And the person you heard at the end of that clip, by the way, that was Jim Lindsay, who was very instrumental in, in that season and seasons to come. Um, so how about if we go back to the end of that sports reel um, where they – Talk about winning the championship after a big win in the Cotton Bowl. Cotton Bowl victors for the first time. The Razorbacks have finished the year undefeated in 11 games. A Texas victory over Alabama in the Orange Bowl that evening leaves the Razorbacks alone at the top of the college football world. And within a week, this great Arkansas team is officially named National Collegiate Football Champions. That was 1964, a year to remember. We're talking about Jerry Jones on this week's Prior Center Profiles. I'm in the office of Randy Dixon at the Prior Center. What do we got next? Well, uh, Jerry Jones graduates, and he goes out into the business world. And, of course, he had some ups and downs, had some successes and failures, but enough successes that... uh, he amassed a pretty impressive fortune. So by 1989, in February, he uh, got was in negotiations with Bum Bright, the uh, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, and bought the team. And so suddenly you have an Arkansan who owns a Texas team. And he, by the way, he bought it for $140 million. So uh, here's the announcement. Jerry Jones made after the purchase. I'd like to say this. Um, you know, my home is Arkansas. And um, my family are Arkansas. And um, I'm moving to Dallas. But um, my heart and my family, many, many, many business interests are here. And the people that know me real well probably will say Jerry's going to be in Arkansas as much as he ever was because I travel a lot. Um, When my wife and I were first married, uh, I I got in on uh, Saturday night and left out on Sunday. I was a traveling salesman. So I've always traveled, but uh, uh, I have a wonderful feeling for Arkansas, but I've spent a lot of time outside the state of Arkansas and uh, consequently uh, have... uh, always told everybody that I've known or had any contact with in business how beautiful, how wonderful our wonderful state is. So I'm not leaving Arkansas. I'm just 
gain in taxes. Says he's still going to be in Arkansas, and that was true. He still shows up in Arkansas a lot. $140 million, that's a lot of money, but it shows you how, since 1989, sports franchises have changed because franchises now sell for a billion dollars or more. Well, that's true, and uh, by, I guess it was by 2009, the team was worth $4.2 billion, billion with a B. <laughs> so, he, yeah, he had a pretty good... Uh, Pretty good investment there. Good return, as they would say. That's that's correct. Uh, but, th- you know, it wasn't without controversy. Not only was there an Arkansan owning the Cowboys, but one of the first things he did was fire longtime and most beloved head coach Tom Landry. That did not go over well. I remember seeing, uh, like, Texas Monthly magazine, and they would just – in the newspapers, the Dallas Morning News would just rip him up on a regular basis. They did not like him. Well, not only does he fire beloved Tom Landry, but he brings in another Archie to to be the new coach. Yeah, his buddy Jimmy Johnson, and he had been on that 64 team with him. So uh, out with Landry, uh, in with Johnson, and... Well, they had a news conference that uh, is opened by uh, General Manager Tex Schramm to introduce Jimmy Johnson. Sorry to have kept you waiting, but it's been a it's been a very active morning, and uh, so to not further delay things, uh, I would like to introduce again uh, the new owner of the Dallas Cowboys Football Club. Uh, Jerry Jones, who in turn will uh, introduce our new head coach. Thank you, Tex. I'm going to be brief. This is Jimmy's day. Um, Jimmy's my friend. Um, I have a lot of friends, and they're not in business with me, and I'm I'm only going to express myself through me today so you'll understand. Um, As I viewed the football business, very similar to some other businesses that I'm in, it is very important that people work and play above their pay scale. And to do that, you've got to have leadership that will lead you above that and enthuse you above that. A football team has got to have everybody enthused at the same time and at the same level. It's got to also have everybody executing at the same time. There are some sports that a couple can let down and one main man do a job, but not in football. I love Tex Ram opening that. It's like, it's been an active day, and you know what? Here's the new owner. He's going to take care of the rest of this. I'm getting out of here. Yeah, I'm done. And as a matter of fact, Within a few months, he was done. Uh, Jerry fired him, too. So he was kind of cleaning house. And like I say, he was having a tough time at this point because that first season under Jimmy Johnson, they were 1-15. and And then the second season, they were 7-9. and But in 92 and 93, they won back-to-back Super Bowls. So he's, he's getting out of the, out of the trench kind of at this point with fans but 
there's still more controversy. Um, Mr. Jones was a very hands-on owner. Was very hands-on? Okay. Yes, uh, is, but at the time uh, didn't go over too well with Jimmy Johnson, and they had some very public uh, disputes and quarrels, and they both kind of took credit for the success of the team. And uh, Jimmy Johnson quit, but it, what he didn't really quit, but he left, and in comes Barry Switzer. And Speaking of Arkies. And yet another Arky, yes. Um, and they won the 95 Super Bowl. So we're, we're up to 2009. The team's worth $4.2 billion, and here comes Texas Stadium. Why would you dare go out here and build and spend a billion two hundred million dollars? And by the way, do it right in the middle of what may be one of the biggest economic problem times in the history of uh, this country. What would make you, what is it that you're trying to feel or what is it that you're trying to do to do that? Well, I think candidly, I grew up with a level of that because there was a point that my father got to and mother where it sure wasn't about what they ate or the how pretty a car they had. Mother had a had a, had a little convertible we could put a pony in the back of. <laughs> well, you know, your dad put together uh, what. So I mean, like- you're talking about uh, you're, you're talking about ambition here. Maybe we can close out here with um, from a prior sitter interview. We had we had the opportunity to go down to Texas a few years ago and sit down and talk with him. And he, uh, you know, he loves football. And he talked about his love for football and what that team means to him. I think you evolve into a love for football. My initial uh, sporting uh, interest was baseball, basketball. Uh, Football asks you to do things that are not natural. You're supposed to get out from in front of 300 pounds, not get in front of it. And so I think uh, as it grew, as you became involved, you realized the value of teamwork, the value of blind faith in your coaching, uh, the accomplishment that you feel uh, after a successful play or successful win, all of those things had to come with the uh, progression of being involved over the years. When we, when I first started, a uh, uh, little touch football out there, well, that was a totally different thought than when I uh, was in, at the University of Arkansas and the, the responsibility that I felt of wanting to go out and, and be successful for the state and be successful for your team. Uh, I really knew, for instance, before the game that uh, in 30 minutes I was going to come back in with a headache. I was going to come back in with a skinned-up head. Uh, and I'd hear all the fun going on outside, and I would say, boy, I wonder, I bet that's fun. I, I wonder what I'm doing here. But then when we came back in and had that win, it was all worth it. Jerry Jones, the subject of this week's Prior Center Profile. You can see many of these cuts, many of them from the Digitized Archives. That last uh, bit we heard was from an actual interview uh, that the Prior Center did. You do these with people, and these are lengthy interviews that people can also see online. That's right. Some of them are up to uh, six hours long. So they're very in-depth, and you can... 
you can watch highlights, you can watch, uh, listen to the entire interview, or, or uh, check the transcript. You can search for anything uh, in that interview that, that you might like to read or hear or see. And those interviews continue right now. Yes, we, we're uh, constantly doing interviews. All right. Randy Dixon is with us almost every Monday with these Prior Center profiles. Put in Prior Center into a search engine. You can see that, Randy. Until next week, thanks. Thank you, Kyle. I'll see you then. KUAF listeners are investors. They invest in the markets, in their homes, in their families, and in their communities. You can make an investment in reaching these important consumers by becoming a KUAF program sponsor. Call me, Rhonda Dillard, at 575-4441 to learn more about KUAF underwriting opportunities. This is KUAF 91.3 Fayetteville. Fort Smith, Rogers, and Mossville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Timothy Dennis produced today's program. Contributors to our show included Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, who provided information about the Cherokee Nation settlement with opioid manufacturers, and Randy Dixon who is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy will be back with us next Monday as we'll take another trip through Pryor Center archives. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Shaw. Cherry Ottaviano is KUAF's membership director. By the way, you can hear more news about where you live each weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30 when Daniel Carruth delivers morning newscasts from the Karen Taha News Studio. And at 6.30 and 8.30 every weekday morning, Inside Morning Edition, it's the latest edition of Community Spotlight with Pete Hartman. That comes to us from the Nancy Blair Operations Studio. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. And there is the uh, KUAF Ozarks at Large daily email newsletter. It's free. You can subscribe at KUAF.com and get caught up in case you miss anything on the show, what we had on that day. It arrives in your email inbox every Monday through Friday afternoon. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellams. Please take care of yourself. We'll talk again very soon.